you're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter and this week we're talking food. How sustainable is it? How not to waste it? What responsibility we have here in the developed West to take up the challenge of global goal two to end hunger? And how do we get smarter about the whole food distribution, supply, management and waste chain? And what can we do to close the loop? I'm delighted to be joined by three food experts in the broadest sense who all bring very different experiences and perspectives to bear on this debate. My first guest, Paul Newnham, is the head of the SDG2 Advocacy Hub. And that does sound like a mouthful, uh, but he will explain. And basically, it's a campaigning hub to support action and engagement around Global Goal 2 to end Uh, hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Paul's a really experienced campaigner and both nationally and globally and he's particularly good at mobilising young people. So welcome Paul. Thank you. My second guest, Helen Mundy, is the Chief Scientific Officer at the Food and Drink Federation and she is accountable for sustainability and the diverse food and safety science policy briefs um, there. She's a registered nutritionist and she contributes a lot to the health and well-being policy debate. She's got a wide background and experience in the food industry and she has been on the other side of the fence with organisations like Mars Bar and Coca-Cola. So welcome, Helen. Hi. And my third guest moves us from Mars Bars to coffee, a truly sustainable diet, actually, chocolate and coffee. And that's Julia Porter, who is the National Supply Chain Manager at BioBean. And BioBean are the world's first company to recycle coffee waste into biofuels and hopefully, I think, biochemicals. And Julia oversees the gathering of all the waste and the supply into their Cambridgeshire factory. Their ambition is to tackle global concerns related to waste collection and disposal and extract valuable resources from coffee grounds. And I have to say, before I met BioBean, I didn't realise just how much coffee is wasted in producing instant coffee, for example. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Julia about that. Welcome, Julia. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. We've got a really interesting panel here and we've got a lot to chat about. But before we start, as always, regular pod listeners know, we, we have a quick round of the good, the bad and the ugly, introduced as ever by our own version of the iconic theme tune. So who'd like to kick us off? Paul, you've had a really busy time in the last few weeks launching some very exciting projects. Have you got a good, bad or ugly for us? Yeah, I do. Uh, one of the good things that happened this week or that we're in the middle of is that uh, there's a new London food policy that's coming together, a food strategy for the City of London. And so we were able to meet with some of the team and give some feedback But what I liked about this is that there's some really interesting proposals on the table around child obesity, around tackling advertising, a sugar tax, a number of different elements 
that I think could really have a big impact on the obesity numbers that the UK is experiencing at the moment. And so now's the time for that consultation. And so we're in the middle of that space. So it's pretty exciting. And it even included some cool things like I heard about um, tackling like phone boxes that are actually increasing at the moment because of advertising. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to dig more into that and learn a little bit more about it. But it seemed in the age of mobile phones that that was kind of going against the trend. <laughs> kind of counterintuitive. But I guess the phone box is a great place to stick your advice for advert for a yet another bigger chocolate bar perhaps yeah Go no and, and i think they're wanting to target you know what happens at the the register how sugary cheap drinks and food is really just advertising at a huge way to our kids and and really having a big impact so i think controlling that food environment a little bit more i think could could be helpful for everyone yeah, I think we have a debate coming up because obviously, Helen, you're sitting on an industry body representing quite a lot of those organisations for whom perhaps that is a big part of their advertising spend. So I'm sure we'll have things to pick up. But do you have a good, bad or ugly for us? Well, mine's a good as well, actually. Um, so we've been hearing an awful lot about plastic and I think it can become a, a, a way too simple uh, a concept and we can end up talking about that we're going to ban plastic but actually plastic is a problem because we don't uh, value it as a, a a really good resource and it has lots of massively helpful properties and you, we don't really want to throw the baby out <laughs> with the bathwater so my good piece is really that um, government is starting to um, come up with uh, research and innovation funds that businesses like our member companies can engage with and work out how to do things differently but really targeting the things that need fixing and recognizing that there are actually some things that we should just be doing a bit better rather than banning. So it's kind of towards plastic waste reduction, not banning plastic. <laughs> it's a very nuanced arg argument, this. But actually, I completely agree with you because we've had, you know, a lot of debates on the pod about plastic. And we had um, Sean Sutherland from A Plastic Planet, who is, as you know, the campaign of looking around at plastic-free supermarket aisles. And she always says that plastic belongs on a pedestal. It's a wonder material. It's really useful. It's hygienic. It's clean. It creates sterile environments where those are needed. So as with all of the things in the sustainability environmental conversation, there's no black or white about mm -hmm. this. We actually need to look at all of the aspects of, of yep. the plastic in the supply chain. Yep. There's some things we know that are wholly bad, like the single use that we could get rid of, and others that we just need to manage in a different way. How about you, Julia? Another good? Yeah, I have a good. We're such a positive bunch. Um, so I read a few weeks ago that um, so Marks and Spencers are um, looking at replacing sort of labels and stickers on their fruit and vegetables with laser scanning. So I think it, I mean, it, it'll probably, I think they estimated save about 10 tonnes a year of paper being used. But if you think about that across the board, if other supermarkets are doing it, other shops and chains, then it could start making a difference. So it's just nice that it's on people's radar. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it gets rid of that horrible peeling, yeah. you know, sticky label off the it's outside. so annoying. You haven't put it in a, paper, a bag, you've done your best, you've brought it home and you can't get the wretched label off yeah. the courgette or whatever it is that you want to eat. So yeah, well done Marks and Spencers. They have other issues around plastic, yes. but don't let's go there. <laughs> so just moving on to the whole debate around food. Um, we've talked about the global goals on the pod before. And if you haven't listened to it, there's a great episode. So download it, download it now. Um, but I think we'd really like to just pick your brains a little bit, Paul, about what SDG2 means and what the advocacy is, advocacy hub is and what you're doing about it. So could you just give us a little snapshot about what it is that you're up to? Yeah, sure. And now I'll just, for the listeners, just give a quick overview of the global goals because this is something that we, we can't, I suppose, talk about enough. Um, so the global goals are a set of 17 goals that every country of the world agreed to um, in the year 2015. So all of our leaders on our behalf signed up to them. And they're to address the 17 big issues that they agreed as our leaders that the world needs to address. And so it's between now and 2030 that we have set targets that are measurable to work towards. And so each of those goals are meant to be interrelated. They're not meant to be seen in isolation, but they also do highlight certain areas that are connected. And so goal two is one of them. Um, and goal two really looks at the whole area of food, agriculture and nutrition. And it looks at how food's grown, um, who gets the food, uh, how that food is looked at. So there's a lot on biodiversity and improving the biodiversity. There's, there's some stuff in there about sustainable farmers. There's definitely a whole piece on nutrition and that looks at both ends. So you know, obesity through to hunger. And then uh, it also sets some pretty ambitious goals around ending hunger over the next, um, well, we've got about 12 years. So sustainable development goal two is broadly food, agriculture and nutrition. And what the Advocacy Hub does is it's been pulled together to help support the different agencies that are working in this way. And so it's working across the United Nations and so there's the big agencies like the World Food Programme and the Food and Agriculture Organisation and, and a number of others. And then private sector, because private sector is playing a key role in this space. And so you've got many big companies, and I won't you know, name any at this point, but there is a, a number of big companies. And then also to work across civil society. And so that works in all kinds of different, from your charity space to different advocacy groups to different national bodies. And so what we're doing is trying to help them connect. So to have a conversation and connect what they're doing. We're also helping them collaborate on key moments that happen at a global level. And then we're also trying to um, create some kind of campaign narratives that can help us combine some of the energy and engage the public in new ways. And so there's a number of things that we've done to kind of... Um, in, in start doing that we only launched a year ago but we've already got over 130 members in in all across the world from really big organizations through to more national organizations and growing every day so can small individual ngos or, or organizations join or is there a criteria for membership 
No, so our membership's very open because these goals are everyone's goals. Everyone has a responsibility. And so that can be an individual who's passionate to an organization. And so the way our hub is set up is that it's very open. Um, so we have a, a web platform uh, and you can go on there, you can register, you can then set yourself up as an individual or an organization and then learn from each other, share ideas. Um, and we've got a shared calendar with events that are happening globally and nationally in different parts of the world. And so what we're doing is building around that networks that are also focused in key areas relevant. So one of those is is chefs that we've been partnering with. And so this is something that we just recently launched. Uh, so we worked with chefs um, in over 40 countries. And what we found was they didn't have a narrative to connect what they're doing into the global goals. And so there's lots of great initiatives, chefs all over the world doing all kinds of really cool things. But then at the global level, it's hard for them to then be able to kind of talk about that on the global stage. And so what we did was we worked with them to take the, the sustainable development goals or the global goals and uh, turn that into language and focus that makes sense for them. And so what we've done is through a series of online um, surveys and then meetings in different parts of the world, uh, pulled together an action plan. And now we're building a network for the global goals. And we're looking at all the goals, not just goal two, but obviously goal two's featured fairly highly. And this, this manifesto is now turning into action hubs and, and actions and, and this network of chefs that are doing amazing things to contribute in their own way. And so it's just creating stories, creating a community and creating a, a, a way of talking about these goals in everyday reality. And uh, what we're finding is just um, a really interesting growing momentum. I, w I had three calls this morning, you know, from chefs in Copenhagen, in, in, in the UK, in Kenya, saying what they wanted to do. So it's like really starting to, to kind of move. That's absolutely key, isn't it, to get those people who have that high profile and commitment to get behind these because what makes the global goals different I think from the millennium goals that were set in 2000 is they are more accessible both in the way they're presented in the levels of, of that you can come in at them because they have so many targets and levels underneath but also there's something that as you say that interconnectedness so they don't all sit in their separate silos and I think having a chef who possibly it would have a reputation as being someone who's at the top end of the food chain in terms of you know quality of ingredients perhaps you know ridiculous amounts of preparation into one small meal to advocate for something that's fundamental as access to you know proper decent nutrition and food for the world is a really really powerful advocacy tool isn't it having them on your side campaigning on your behalf yeah and we're we're really connecting chefs at all different levels so um, even last week on Friday, we had some of the chefs that were in town. There was chefs from the US and from Nigeria and chefs from the UK. And they all went down to the Refertory of Felix, which um, takes food waste or surplus waste from supermarkets. So the, the food that turns up at the supermarket and the supermarket rejects is collected then and taken there. And they take those ingredients and turn them into dishes that then feed people that are living rough in London. And, I mean, that's just one example. There's lots of other examples of this sort of program running around the world in places like Brazil, India, you know, different parts of the world. But what we're finding is these chefs can bring those skills. They can tie those skills into creating amazing um, dishes that are nutritious, that are using the whole, 
you know, seasonal produce, they're bringing that in and, and, and really meeting needs in that regard. And I think that's one of the things that's also really interesting is not just the voice, but also the skills. And, you know, a good chef can really, you know, grab five ingredients and turn them into an amazing meal. Um, but what they can do is also educate us and inspire us about what we're doing. And all the TV shows, the food conversations, the blogs, the podcasters, you know, there's this amazing kind of opportunity for people to kind of find out about what can they do and how can they get involved and how can they um, use more efficiently and effectively the produce that's available. It's almost reskilling us, isn't it, into an, a, a going back, if you like, in a way of producing food where we were closer to the means of production and we never wasted things and we actually used what we needed to do to use to make a meal, a nutritious meal. And this idea that things, you know, are always pre-packed, there's too much and there's this food waste in the system because we've lost touch with that ability to perhaps, you know, take five ingredients and create a dish or, or even to plan. I think the idea of kind of, you know, long-term meal planning for a lot of people is either very difficult or or just they can't they don't have the skills to do it or they live such irregular lifestyles that they can't you know do a weekly shop and then make sure there's nothing wasted at the end of it so so the idea that you've got a perhaps a well-known celebrity chef leading that campaign has got to generate interest and engagement amongst young people particularly yeah no and i also think it's about everyday chefs you know from a school canteen to um a corporate chef to, to really think and be a part of this. I mean, the good thing about the goals is they are very open and we need everyone. Yeah. And so I think all those voices coming together around that is really critical. Um, but also just kind of asking the question and, and seeing how do you address that? I mean, there's, there's so many cool companies out there and startups that are starting to look at the way food waste is being used. Um, addressing some of the way waste and packaging and all kinds of different elements in that supply chain. And I think that's all part of it because there is also the impact on our planet. And, and I think the links between climate and, and, and food need to be really brought out more clearly. Um, the way we eat, the way we grow food, the way we waste food is, having one, is one of the biggest contributors to climate um, issues and so I think in places like the UK we have a responsibility to sort that out pretty quickly and contribute you know the minimal amount of impact for the maximum amount of nutrition and 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 food yeah definitely Helen this must mm. be an issue to lots of the organizations that you represent yeah. um, in in your um, you know trade body as you are effectively particularly that issue around waste and packaging and, mm. and and getting things into and out of the supply chain yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's really important to understand the numbers and look at the evidence because i think it's easy to have an idea in our minds of what the issues are um but that those don't always represent the, the real issues. So we, we absolutely need to uh, understand the, the facts. And, and certainly the food and drink industry has a, an essential interest in protecting the environment because having good quality and healthy ingredients means that we will produce, hopefully, healthy um, products and with a, a sustainability footprint that is uh, is a, a good one for the planet and 
going in the right direction. And we've been working as uh, the Food and Drink Federation and member companies on, on this area properly for as long as we've existed, but in a very organised way um, uh, during the 2000s. And we uh, launched our ambition. Uh, we re-updated, actually, our ambition not too long ago around Ambition 2025. And maybe it's a surprise. I don't know. But our member companies send no waste food to landfill. Now, you, you probably have a view that, uh, that is a different number to that. But essentially, less than 0.1% of food waste from manufacturers goes to landfill. Now, it may go to animal feed. It may go to other things than a finished product, but it doesn't go to landfill. And that's incredibly important in using resources effectively. And that's what I mean about looking at the evidence. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. (laughs) So where is it coming from then? Paul, you've just talked about, you know, that food waste going to that recycling centre and being scooped up and and used to So I'm talking about manufacturers. I'm not talking about retailers. Somewhere else in the supply chain then. The problem is not with the manufacturers. The problem is with the retailers and supermarkets. I mean, there's food waste issues that all all, all along the supply chain. And and so like that... That, that's great to hear that there's none going into landfill. But it, it, in terms of waste, I wouldn't say food is only wasted through landfill. Um, food can be wasted in lots of other ways. It can be given to animal feed when it's, it's fit for human consumption. It could be um, turned into energy at a very high environmental cost, more than landfill. Like So there's different dimensions, and I think the facts are, you know, what we try and do is always try and bring in the scientific um, community to look at those facts and give us advice because, you know, where as an advocate you need to know that. So I completely agree. Um, the key is it's also very there's so many dimensions. You know, uh, it's not just about reducing our carbon. It, it's also monitoring our in, introduction of nitrogen and phosphorus and other elements that have all kinds of impacts um, around the the climate side you know we're we're working at the moment with a group from eat foundation that are doing a lancet level report on sustainable diets um, within planetary boundaries and i think they've got seven markers looking at at planetary health and those seven markers are all important you know and going into that i was like oh it's just about reducing carbon miles and then you go no you could get your carbon miles down and you could still have an increase in the climate. Mm-hmm. So I think there's the science is key. I think where the food waste is coming from, there's a lot that comes in people's homes, yeah. an awful lot, because, you know, they, they it's not stored properly, they buy too much. I think there's a lot that is in people's homes as a result of what happens in supermarkets. Um, talking to some of the Nordic countries, they've actually put rules around selling two for one. They, they don't allow you to buy two loaves of bread for the price of one because they say that's going to go to waste because you buy it because it's cheap. Mm. Um, they've also made rules around making you – know, they've worked with the producers to create single household loaves of bread that are smaller and not twice the price, you know. So I think there's a, a way that um, 
the industry can work with the consumers that can be mutually beneficial. And so there's groups like I've seen Toast Beer, for example, that uses food waste beer, bread, that comes because we don't like eating sa- the ends of our sandwiches. Um, you know, you don't like the crust, but they're turning into beer. I mean, that's a great solution. Yeah, and, and for example, um, fruit trimmings are now being used to make fruit crisps. Um, there's all sorts. Of, there's no waste stream should be a rubbish stream. If it's a, a waste from something, mm. you can use it. And I guess bio bean is a fantastic example of that. But we have seven key areas that we're working on as part of our ambition. CO2 emission, food waste, packaging, water, transport, sustainable supply chains and natural capital. And every year we do a summary on how we're doing against those ambition and what our achievements have been made. Uh, And we can give you a a link to our our last... um, uh, review of, of how we're doing but in general um, it's going in, it's going in the right direction but you have to invest to make improvements and there's an awful lot of effort and hard work that has to go into it yeah we'll definitely put the link on on the website I think what we've got is what you're both saying in different ways and different ends of the spectrum is we have a real rethink to do about our relationship with food, food production, land usage. I mean, there's a terrifying statistic out there, isn't there, that we've got about 100 years left of, of usable land in terms of food production. The quality of the, the soil is is at such a low level that we may be running out of places to grow food in, a, in 100 years. Um, and it's about that understanding that relationship and getting back to the basics and the principles. And of course, as consumers, we have a responsibility not to overstock, overbuy, throw things away. And we all do it. I bet everyone's guilty of that. I, I know I am, however hard I try and how much I rant about non-food waste. It, it does happen. So it's about encouraging as well as educating, isn't it? And that's that message that I think you're both sharing. Mm-hmm. But, but Helen, can I just ask, because there must be massive pressure within those big food manufacturers to not necessarily always use best quality, most expensive ingredients. And a lot of that obesity problem that Paul described has come from the high levels of fats and sugars, which generate on the whole cheaper food products, isn't it? And we know that it's cheap food products that that tend to lead to greater levels of obesity. How do you Square that circle, as it were, in in your organisation. Well, I think you're always looking to provide choice. You always want 100% safe products and then you want to have products that fit into people's lifestyles and you want to encourage behaviour that is the right thing for people to do at the right time. Um, it's, It's massively complex and... You know, I'm a nutritionist and and this is one of the, the most difficult problems to answer. We know that there are huge um, uh, differences between the wealthy and the poor in life expectancy, in their choices around food. And they're not always uh, going for the cheaper foods and the cheaper foods are not always the poorest quality. So, you know, we know that basic vegetables are pretty cheap, yet 
the people that we might want to be consuming those aren't consuming them at, at the high enough level. I mean, as a nation, our fibre consumption is just not high enough. We should be eating more naked vegetables. Um, but we don't. And it's understanding why we don't do some of those things. And, you know, it's do they have do they have kitchens? Do they have prep uh, things to prepare mm, uh, yeah. scratch meals? Uh, do they have the knowledge to do it? There's there's all sorts of things here. People go to convenience foods for a reason. Yeah. And if we understood more about what those reasons were, then I think we would be starting to, to scratch the surface of this. But It's like the plastics, isn't it? Yeah, yours. I mean... Paul, huge, I know you want to come back. Huge numbers of people want to, to try and, and solve this and it's not going to be one size fits all. Paul, do you want to come back just quickly because we need to take yeah, a break? Yeah. But- no, there was this one thing that stood out um, from a conversation I just had recently and it was around the price of food and it was to do with where research dollars are invested by agri- big agriculture companies and that the majority of investment is going into the big five grains. And that's why they're becoming cheaper and more affordable and they're dominating the food landscape. And I was like thinking about that and saying, you know, in the current environment, we really need with our climate and everything to be looking at a much more diverse set of grains and a set diverse set of foods. And that would then bring down the efficiency for production, for, for um, commerce. So I think that would be something that's also really interesting and, and something I hadn't thought of. I often just thought, oh, it's being driven, you know, flour and, and rice and wheat and are all, but, but there's a reason. It's because we've got the efficiency right down and that's through research investment. So, you know, looking at millets and different types of grains, quinoas and all these other grains which have higher nutritional level, but at the moment the cost ratio is high for production, I think is something that needs to be part of it. Well, we are starting to grow quinoa in Wales, apparently. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, it used to grow in Chile or Peru, but yeah. now we can do it in Wales. Who knew? We need to take a break for just a moment. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Akil Management and the Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to the pod and download earlier episodes. Quinoa and Wales, the mind boggles. I want to move across to Julia, if I may, because you're at the other end, if you like. So we've been talking about production, we've been talking about investment and research, but, but BioBean are picking up the other end of the scale, mm-hmm. if you like. What happens when we've and got our latte in our keep cup um what happens to the to the coffee grounds tell us a little bit about what you've been doing at, at biobean of course um yeah so when you touched on it earlier but we we produce so much coffee waste in the uk and i don't think people really appreciate it or actually realize so it's about half a million tons every single year of coffee waste and um, which is an unavoidable organic waste um and that's so that's about 55 million cups of coffee every single day <laughs> that's a lot um so yeah we're, we're doing our best to to recycle it at the moment we're not even scratching the surface i mean if that 500 000 tons a year is a lot so we've got a factory in cambridgeshire where we're 
processing as much as we can. Uh, we work with transport companies and hauliers and waste management companies who collect it for us. So we're not doing it ourselves. We're not throwing more vehicles on the road and pumping out emissions. So we're making use of kind of existing infrastructure and expertise out there. Um, so the it, coffee grounds mm. you're talking about, and they'll go into the waste stream of either a coffee shop yeah. or, or perhaps a large organisation mm-hmm. that has coffee machines. And then what do you do with it? <laughs> so, yeah, so it's collected as a segregated waste stream by the waste management companies brought back to our, our factory where we produce it into uh, two sort of solid biofuels. So one of which is a coffee log. So it's it's a, it's a fuel, so you can you can use it on a on a stove or an open fire. So it's basically a, a direct replacement for a log or coal. So you um, it it I guess people don't really realise again that coffee is is very calorific. It's very oily, so it burns actually a lot hotter and a lot longer than traditional wood does. So instead of you know importing wood from abroad or or using land to grow trees and chop them down to create fuel, you're you're just burning a waste stream. Um, and then we also produce small biomass pellets, and that's again to displace wood chip to use in big industrial boilers. And then we're also, which you touched upon earlier, we're also looking at the oil that you can extract from from the coffee waste. So that solid matter is always going to be there for use in the fuel. But we've also got oil that we can extract that we can use in sort of flavour and fragrances and cosmetics. So instead of using um, you know, synthetic or, or resource-heavy production methods. We're kind of looking at bio-based alternatives. So I guess instead of importing beans, extracting the oil, throwing the bean in the bin, we're getting that oil post-consumer. And that oil is the really valuable and interesting bit, isn't it? Yes. If you can find uses for that, that would not only reduce, as you say, transport and mm. and, and carbon miles, but have actually presumably replace other things that are less good for the planet in terms exactly. of an oil production yeah i mean we're we're working our socks off at the moment for that we've we've done really really well with our coffee logs and our pellets we know we're stocking our coffee logs in quite a few places now so yeah a real push and effort is on this oil extraction and looking at looking at products and and yeah we're, that's what we're really excited about so there's an example of a relatively small-ish startup that hasn't been going for long, maybe five, six Four, years. Yeah, not even. Yeah, ne- ne- yeah, nearly five years. Actually, looking at a, a major waste, mm. food waste problem, and coming up with a solution. Helen, you wanted to come well, back. Well, it's, it's just a, it's not a, a sustainability question, but <laughs> I used to love the coffee roasters in the high street <laughs> oh, of my town. Yeah. What does it smell like <laughs> when you burn one of these logs? It's so funny. We get this question all the time. People. Th- just assume that they're going to smell really strongly of coffee, but they, I, you know, what I think it's just up down to opinion. If you think about it, once you've drunk the coffee, and then a lot of that flavour's already gone, and then it sits mm. in a bin, and it sits in a, in a coffee mountain, literally our factory. By the time it then gets dried and put into the logs, it has a more of a kind of chocolatey, composty wood, slightly mm. coffee aroma. So yeah, it doesn't make your front room smell of Starbucks but uh. <laughs> what's really interesting is the instant coffee industry because mm. that's still huge isn't it a lot of people drink a lot of instant coffee but but to create the instant coffee you're just taking a tiny bit of essence aren't you out of the bean and then the rest is wasted yeah so presumably there's something in there about closing that loop as well perhaps yeah. getting you know one of your factories next mm. to a 
you know, maybe an instant coffee factory or something. So you can go straight from one door to the other. Is that something you're looking at? It's something that we have previously looked into, and it might be something that we look look into further. I mean, at the moment, we are really focused on the biochemical side of things, but definitely there is a huge amount of waste produced at these instant coffee factories that we would love to get our hands on more conveniently with less transport involved. So, yeah, watch this space. I'm sure we'll be working on it. But the average personal consumer can't get their waste into your system yet, can they? It has no. to be a corporate or a, yeah. or, a, or a coffee supplier of some kind. Yeah, I mean, yeah, anyone that uses a waste management company that's maybe, I guess, councils and things, but at home, your all your waste disposal is tied into your, your tax and things, whereas this is all business level. You know, you pay for your waste management company to pick up your waste. So, yeah, at the moment, we're not looking at sort of domestic households. Maybe in the future we could have coffee drop bins next to our coffee cup recycling station. We could put our coffee grounds in as well. I think that's just a a fascinating example of the opportunities that you can get from from looking at things in a different perspective. And that must be something that, that, you know, we need to keep having that conversation, don't we? We need to keep giving all of those different groups and and um, entrepreneurs and individuals and organisations together around the table, which is why your hub is such a valuable resource. Paul, are the other global goals doing the same thing? Because when you started telling us about it, you were talking about how they are all interlinked, obviously, those 17. Are there advocacy hubs for some of the other goals as well? There is some hubs and networks around different parts of other goals. There's not actually a hub for any one whole goal. So, for example, food waste, which is a really a waste, is actually not in goal two. People people are quite surprised when they hear that. So it's where does it sit? It's actually in goal 12, 12.3. So goal 12 is where waste is and it's all around um, like recycling and the whole sort of uh, responsible consumption and production is in, in goal 12. And so people think food waste goal two, it's goal 12. So goal 12.3 has a a whole space around um, the food waste side. And so they're a partner of ours. We work with them. Obviously, you can't talk food without talking waste. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there is this kind of interlink and and connection, which is kind of quite fascinating. And that's part of the reason why when we looked at this uh, work with chefs, we, we kind of had to look across all 17 goals because there is an interlinkage. So you can't talk about, you know, livelihoods, for example, where people are getting basic, you know, uh, incomes to be able to afford to buy food. Um, If you don't look at also gender, um, because you you just can't separate those kinds of um, issues, you know, in smallholder farmers, um, in all kinds of parts of the developing contexts and the economy, these issues are connected. You can't look at agriculture without looking at water. You can't look at, you have to look at oceans as, a, as a, a role in food supply. So all of these things connect. And so this is where working across the goals, what we've seen is this, this real connection. Goal two particularly is interesting because we do have to bring people around the table because, you know, you have specialists in the area of nutrition, but then you also have specialists in the area of agriculture. And we have to get them talking the same, you know, on what are solutions that help each other. Because otherwise I think what happens is we confuse the public and then politicians can say, oh, well, we'll do that and we won't do that. Or we'll do this and we won't do that. Yeah, the worst thing we could do would be to cherry pick 
which yes. bits of the goals and which bits of those 170 odd targets that sit under the 17 headlines that we choose to address because we need to address them all don't we and Helen your members must be thinking about the SDGs and getting them into their business because they will cover as Paul said so many aspects of the food production food distribution and supply chain generally yeah yeah I mean the the problem is when you have multiple factors is trying to do them all at once and that's a bit like with the with the plastic discussion because plastics have a very important role in food safety and shelf life and you could take away all the plastic from uh, food packaging Uh, but the first thing is you probably have to replace it with something and that has to be a packaging that's approved for food use which is quite a lengthy approval process so I mean, we're hearing a lot of really positive stuff about alternatives. But when you've got something sitting against um, a a piece of fruit or vegetable or whatever it is, you need to make sure there's nothing that's going to migrate from that packaging into the food and and affect it. So it's a balanced scorecard type thing. You've, You've got to make sure that all of the dials are somehow going in the right direction without sending one massively in the right direction but having a terribly negative on, on the other. And, and that's always the tricky thing. Yeah, and you used the example of the cucumber, didn't you, which is wrapped in shrink, shrink plastic, which I rant about. But as you quite rightly point out, that increases its shelf life and then also presumably increases its life in the fridge. So mm. in turn, hopefully, creates less waste. So it's always playing the one off against the other, isn't it? This idea yeah. of the, yeah. you know, well, you it can isn't get, a simple solution. You can solution. get half a cucumber, of course, <laughs> yeah. but you can't get much less than half a cucumber. So if if you're a single-person household, as many are, half a cucumber is probably going to last you a few days and the shrink will keep it good till the end. Without yeah. it, it'll just be mush. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say I order food boxes every week I, I live on my own and I order food boxes so that I don't have to buy too much food and I end up wasting loads of it but <clears throat> a lot of it is wrapped in plastic and you and you get individual sort of potatoes and aubergines wrapped in plastic and then they're, I think they're trying to um to change that a bit so wrap it in sort of wool that you can recycle but then a lot of councils or whatever don't take that recycled wool so yeah it's it's hard to get the balance mm. right yeah, and some things don't need the wrap let's no, be honest no onions but other don't need wrapping do. yeah. Yeah. but some of them don't some of them do come loose and it's lovely yep. it's good yep. yeah we're drawing to a close but i do want to ask you for a call to action so julia have you got one something you'd like listeners to do as a result of this debate because we could have another whole pod on this i mean we've just started i'm gonna have you all back again to have another conversation because <laughs> it's fascinating um, i think i mean i think mine would be if if you if you go to a coffee shop or if you're in your office where you work ask where the coffee waste goes just ask put put pressure on put pressure on people put pressure on companies to do the right thing with the with the coffee waste yeah Yeah. good one thank you helen uh well i rediscovered a cookbook which uh i i first had in 1986 (laughs) when you were very very young (laughs) and it was brilliant for dealing with a surplus of food whether that's something you've overbought yourself or 
you've got a glut of it in your in your garden, like I get lots of damsons and lots of fruit all at the same time. And it, it shows you how to, by individual ingredient, uh, find a, a recipe to, to use lots of it. And it also tells you how to, to freeze it and, and preserve it and other things. We'll pop so, a picture onto the website yeah. cool. really quickly. <laughs> We're running out of time. Yeah. So I would just say think about your food. Think about where your food comes from, what you're eating, what you need to eat to help you and to help the planet. Simple. Thank you. Thank you so much to my guests, to Paul, to Helen and to Julia. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Planet Pod. As always, huge thanks to Jim, who I think probably could keep the entire bio bean factory going in his coffee waste. Um, and a thank you to Breakthrough for, for supporting the pod. You have been listening to Planet Pod. Join us again soon. <laughs>